we created America Speaks, it was done with a simple thought in mind to bring the real, authentic voice of the American people to people just like you, and to give a voice to people who have not been heard until now. This special episode of America Speaks right here on Straight Arrow News is dedicated to the people who run into buildings when everyone else is running away, to the people who come to work day after day, sometimes for 12 or even 16 hours at a time, to serve and protect others, often at tremendous personal sacrifice to themselves and their families. America's firefighters are America's unsung heroes, from California to Connecticut. They're called upon to keep their communities safe, not just from fires, but from just about every personal hazard one could imagine. And for the next 30 minutes, you're going to hear their voices, their stories, and their commitment to the communities they serve, the men and women whom we too often take for granted are about to take center stage. So let's get started. It is an honor and a genuine privilege to be able to conduct a session with people who I consider to be living, breathing heroes for our country. And I know that this, you probably don't appreciate what I say, that you don't want to, that you feel like you're doing your job, that this is your responsibility. But most people run away from places that you run into. And so I'm grateful for what you do. So my first question, and Dusty, I'm going to start with you. What is it about firefighting that attracted you? Why do you want to do a job that puts you in jeopardy? Uh, because you get to help people and we get to do some really cool stuff. Alex from Kansas. Uh, I saw the impact it had on my uh, aging grandmother and I appreciated it. And I feel like I have the guts to help and some don't. So <clears throat> well, I did it. You explained, you said it had an impact on your grandmother. Why? Yeah, she was um, sick with ALS. And so as she was deteriorating, you know, they had to call out 911 and the fire department came out to pick her up a few times. So I saw the impact that it had on her and they had a smile on their face every time. And so that was impressionable to me. So I thought that's something that I would like to do and give back to the people, my neighbors. Robert from Florida. Yeah, my younger brother's a firefighter. So I got to kind of be around that a little bit. I started to like what I saw. Um, the opportunity to help others when they're at their worst. And now it's kind of a, become a family thing. My son does it as well, so makes it even more special. How does that make you feel when your own flesh and blood is doing the same career that you had? It makes you really, really proud. You know, he's putting, <clears throat> putting others above himself, and I think that's a great um, great quality to have. Tom from Nevada, how would you answer that? Well, for me specifically, I've been fortunate to serve the community that I grew up in. And I actually serve in the firehouse that serves the district um, where my parents grew up and where I grew, where my parents lived and where I grew up as a kid. You know, I, I came back here to, to Reno, Nevada and uh, to raise my family and everything after, after I was done with my military career. So I've been fortunate to serve the community that I grew up in. So I, I, I am one of the luckiest people you'll ever meet. I actually, like my brother Tom from Nevada, I get a chance to serve the community I grew up in. Um, and there was a retired firefighter that approached me and said, Mosh, you wouldn't need to be a firefighter, Mosh. And he's a, he's a Vietnam vet. And um, I got the, he saw, you know, I'm 5'10", and, you know, 
good size. <laughs> but it was just really great to be able to serve my community, be a role model, and um, and actually be in a place that is doing great things um, with a lot of really wonderful resources. That's cool. Couple more, Ross from Minnesota. Hey, good evening. Uh, you know, I kind of fell into it. I I started going to medical school, and I found out quickly that it wasn't really for me. I, I was a firefighter for a couple of years before that. And that's what just really brought me joy and happiness. And I went back into it. Um, I've been a medic for most of my career, just recently a firefighter again. But for me, it's making the connections with the community. It's uh, it just those connections that I make every day, whether it's an EMS call or a fire call, it brings great joy and meaning to me. And and I think I, I feel like I'm able to help somebody each and every day and uh, at least bring a little bit of joy to their, to their lives and otherwise uh, stressful situation. Every firefighter I talked to had a special moment that stood out in their career, a moment they would never, ever forget. Not surprisingly, many of them went back to 9-11, and all of them spoke of a tragedy that hopefully no viewer of this program will ever have to experience. Does anyone have a particularly bad moment, a particularly challenging moment, where you had to overcome, and how did you do it? Anybody here? I came across um, a body uh, in the fire of one of the my fellow firefighters. It was his father, actually, he had uh, burned to death on fire. So uh, that was a difficult situation. I came down and saw him on the, in front of the building and had to keep him from going inside the building, basically. Anyone else deal yeah, with I, tragedy? For, for me in Minnesota, um, the murder of George Floyd hit close to home here and, and really um, impacted how public safety uh, was viewed and administered uh, in the state of Minnesota, especially in the metro. And uh, it impacted me greatly and almost made me leave the field. And uh, in the end, I decided that uh, my experience and, and my story that I was able to make a, a larger impact by staying in the, the fire service than, uh, than, than bowing out under all the pressure that everybody was under. Was anyone else impacted by 9-11? Uh, both Tom and Marcia, can you explain how 9-11 affected your service? Uh, for me specifically, it reinforced the reason why I went into public safety. I, I was 17 years old, still in high school, when I enlisted at the Army Reserve. And then I uh, was fortunate enough to get hired by my local fire department. And then, you know, basically two short years later, after I started the academy, was September 11th. Then uh, for me, see, you know, coming out of the military and the public service, what I saw was that the fire service changed that day. And it, it made a significant jump into something that we weren't used to dealing with, which was uh, homeland security and terrorism. And that event just just reinforced the reason why I went into public service. Marcia? Um, I'm an hour and a half from both Boston and New York. And uh, when I was at the academy in the year 2000, it was easy for us to just take a quick trip and visit big dogs. <laughs> you know, the, um, the busiest companies, the craziest stories, the biggest guys, the, um, the smallest amount of patients. <laughs> Cause they all just wanted to go hard all the time. And, um, just a short bit after that to have, uh, this tragedy and to know that, you know, some whole companies were lost. Um, some of the names that people see and 
some of them were actually familiar to us. And then here in West Hartford, we had buses going to funerals all the time. And um, it it just makes you feel how small and how big this universe is all at the same time. And um, I think the effect went really deep when you see those names uh, that you recognize and they're not, they're, they're gone. They're, you're not going to hear those stories anymore. And, um, you're not gonna, you're not gonna have those big, big table. And, um, it, it makes us all feel very vulnerable, very human. And, and it also makes you realize that everyone is willing to sacrifice as much as they can for somebody else. And it's a very selfless job. So, um, it's the best career for me, um, for as long as it has been. And, and it just, it just, it was a big deal. Chris, you're in New York. Yes, sir. Did 9-11 have an impact on you? Uh, yeah, I, um, like uh, Marsha had said, I knew some of the guys um, that uh, died that day. Um, they'd actually, at the fire academy, a lot of New York City firefighters come up to teach at the fire academy in upstate New York. And I, I was, I remember sitting I remember I was working that day and uh, someone came downstairs while I was washing the floor and they're like, a uh, plane just ran into the World Trade Center. And uh came up just in time to see the second one go into the World Trade Center. So that, that hurt me for, a, you know, took me for a loop um, to, to know that those guys are going to be going in there. And then to think that, like, I didn't think they would collapse. Like, I just assumed that they would get everybody out that they could and put the fire out and to know that, you know, an hour, hour and a half later, they both collapsed was, was difficult for all of us, I think. So it, it, it affected, I think every firefighter that day in some form, no matter where they are, uh, it affected everybody. Uh, and I invite any of you, please, this is a good opportunity to tell your story if you have one. Yeah, I was on duty uh, on September 11th. I was uh, uh, driving a ladder truck out of South Central in Erie, and uh, we saw didn't see the first plane hit. We saw the second plane hit. My lieutenant said, uh, things aren't looking good. Let's uh, go out to the grocery store, get some supplies, because we don't know if we're going to be able to get, get back out, depending on what happens the rest of the time. Uh, so it was the first time that, uh, in the history of the fire department that the stations were told, lock your doors, don't go, don't answer the door, don't go out unless you're dispatched on a call. And then probably, uh, it's like the, the next month or so I found out that Tom Gardner, uh, one of the hazmat, uh, guys in New York city, uh, he was killed in, in the collapse and Tom taught me, uh, at the hazmat operations uh, class in Virginia, probably three months before that. So that uh, kind of struck a nerve with me. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, many other people probably knew him as well. Is there anyone else who has a story of sacrifice or pain in the job that you do? That's a weird question, man. <laughs> I mean, oh, 
every day is a sacrifice, <laughs> you know? Every it's all work. It's a great job. Do, do. It's a great job, but it, it every every day is a sacrifice. I mean, you put your life on the line. I've got kids, and I put my life on the line every day I go to work. So, you know, for me, I think of it as, yeah, it's a sacrifice. I wanted to give these heroic men and women the chance to speak to us directly, the people who benefit from their sacrifice, and tell us something we really need to know. They didn't disappoint. Let's listen. Do civilians understand the role that you play? Anybody? Uh, to an extent. How? Or how? Either why or why not? When they see us going to calls and crashing our, our red lights and hitting the sirens and everything else, but at the same time, it's like, you know, they don't know where we're, they don't know if we're going to a medical call or we're going to a structure fire or we're going to an entrapment and someone's body's hanging out of the freaking car, you know? They just know that they need to get out of our way. And half the time, they don't even get out of our way. They're like a deer in headlights with our sirens blaring. It should raise a very good question. What's your greatest frustration or hassle that you have that you want people to know about? That's probably oh. media's portrayal of the job. I think that yep. fire and EMS has been horribly mismarketed, both to people who are looking to come into the career as well as to the public and what they, um, what their expectations are or what they imagine the job to be. And it's just, it, you know, there's times where sure it is, it is a little bit like Hollywood, but, uh, and depending on where you work, whether it's a big urban center or it's rural, um, you know, sometimes it's just a regular day at the office going to work and not much happens. It's pretty mundane. Somebody else. I think one of the frustrations that we're, and I don't know if it's everyone all over the country is having the same problem we are in California, but staffing is a huge problem. I'm getting some feedback. Um, so we have people working 12, 16 days in a row and work in a busy little city in the Bay Area. And it, you know, this job is death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's it's not like, you know, police officers will have an officer-involved shooting and that'll really affect their mental health. But, you know, we just get hit all day, every day with little things that pile up. And, um, you know, I think, you know, not having public support um, when we, you know, when we go to city council meetings and talk about staffing and not having people get behind us, you know, I mean, we've had a couple of people just kind of crack up, you know, but this has been about a year of really difficult, long stretches and people are getting divorced and I agree with that, you know, spouses are losing their jobs. And, you know, so I think that's, you know, the mental health issues, um, that we can't tie to one simple incident and, and public support for staffing, I think is, where we'll come from here. I think we're going to have big problems with recruitment. I mean, we're already having problems getting people to, to sign up for the job. People you know, now want to work two days re remote. You know, they don't want to work at the firehouse and go into burning buildings and freezing cold and that type of stuff. So, you know, I think we're going to have a real challenge. I think it's important to recognize that after September 11, the, the public and the media kind of put the fire service on a pedestal because they saw how much we were willing to sacrifice on on that day. And then you had the recession hit and you had budget cuts and layoffs and staffing issues. 
And then we were just literally climbing out of that when COVID hit. And then now you're an essential employee, but you're an essential employee that can't go home. You're an essential employee that was exposed to a pandemic and some of our coworkers got sick, our families got sick. And you know some of, them, some of the people in my department, we were on duty for 16, 17 days in a row um, going through three different phases of COVID running through our fire department. And here we are today talking about staffing issues and recruitment issues. You know, I think that a lot, yeah, and here we are back into, I don't think truly the public knows what we do on a daily basis or the dynamic of our job. What does the public not know about your life, about your job, about your responsibilities that they should know that will both help you and help them? Dusty? Hey, in, in Oregon, one of our frustrations is uh, recently, within the last few years, they passed Measure 110 which is uh, decriminalizes drugs. So prior to that, we went on overdoses here and there. Since that, we've gone on overdoses fairly consistently, and I've given more Narcan in the last three years than all the previous years combined, um, just because of uh, legislation that's passed, which then leads to more deaths, which I've seen more people younger than me die unfortunately due to this because there's now no mechanism for the state to help get these people the help that they need because there's no penalties these people continue to have uh overdose there's narcan everywhere which saves lives but still people do die and um, we see a lot more death than i think people recognize on the streets i don't think they realize that we give up depending on the shifts we work, we give up a third of our lives at least to do this job. We're away from our families all the time. And we see stuff that you're not meant to see, just like those that are at war see stuff they're not supposed to see. We see some of that stuff too. When I went out and talked to people, one of the things that I always try to tell them is this is not a job. It is a lifestyle. It will affect every part of your life. And you have to be prepared for that. You can't go see death and destruction and just leave it there. It's going to affect your home life. It's going to affect the way you think about things. And the greatest thing that it does, it shows you who you are as a person. Do you lay down and roll over? Are you tough mentally? Is there work that needs to be done? Uh, and and how you uh, connect with other people, because it will affect the relationships that you have with other people. I want three more, four more of you to tell me, what does the public not understand about your life? about your responsibilities. What do you want them to know about your service? Tom, go ahead. Yeah, I think one of the things that the public doesn't recognize is that we are the Swiss army knife of our community. You know, we're medical professionals, we're fire professionals. We are, in some cases, you know, everything from, uh, 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 we're everything from social workers up the chain, you know, uh, on a daily basis. So our, our job is challenging and, and just can't wrap your hands around one facet of our, of our profession because we're faced with everything on a daily basis. I mean, my jurisdiction, if it doesn't go to the police department or public works, it comes to the fire department. In a lot of the cases, some of the stuff that should go to the police department and public works still comes to the fire department. So I think one of the things it's important to recognize too is that firefighters bring order to chaos. 
that's what we do on a daily basis. Whether it's chaos in the fire station, chaos in the community, or in some cases we've had, you know, um, chaos in your own family because of either behavioral health issues or dealing with um, divorce or separations or issues with your kids. Alex, you're up. What does the yeah. public understand? Yeah, I feel like the public needs to understand and learn the purpose of 911. I know in our community, people call 911 and they, for the wrong reasons, right? It's not for an emergency. Uh, we all have regulars in our area. Um, and oftentimes they're calling us to pick up the remote and help them change the channel of the TV. Or they're asking us to refill their soda. Or they're asking us to help wipe their rear end because they can't. Or because they don't have, you know, they don't call a family member. So I think there's a difference between needing medical assistance and... Uh, taking advantage of the system. And in our community, we see, unfortunately, that happened quite a bit. What does the public not get about what you do, Robert? I think they, they don't understand the trauma that we see day in, day out. Um, the, the most terrible things you can think of, and it, I've heard several people mention it, the toll it not only takes on us and how it changes us uh, mentally and sometimes physically even, um, but it also affects our families because we become different. Um, and so that that it changes our whole lives. And I think a lot of the things that make us good at this job are the things that make it very difficult for us to have relationships outside of this job. You know, I could go have a beer with any single one of you that we're willing to, and we could swap stories that would be nearly identical to the ones that we've all lived through. And I think that's the community that we've built, and that's why we're so effective. I'd take, you know, any two, three, four of you guys, and I'd go into a fire with anyone of you, and I know we'd get the job done, and we'd do a great job. But again, the the way that we filter out emotions, the way that we need to stay calm under pressure, it's very difficult in some of my personal relationships about things that are important to other individuals to have those conversations with them in a way that's meaningful for them. Um, and to piggyback a little bit on what Alex and Tom were saying, we are the Swiss army knife and everything that we want to do, every call that we go on where we want to be helpful, oftentimes we're limited by things like budgetary constraints or policies set by, you know, individuals that are outside of the fire department control. And that can be a source of real frustration because there's nothing, there's no emergency that you can call a firefighter to that they won't go and do their best and bring that order to the chaos. But sometimes there's things that you simply cannot do because you don't have the manpower, because you don't have the equipment, because you don't have the personnel, the teams in place. And and that is a very chief source of frustration for a lot of the individuals that I work with. And, and I don't have a good answer as to what we can do to overcome those challenges. Before I ended the conversation, I wanted to give our firefighters the chance to talk directly to your elected leaders on the local, state, and national level. Their advice and guidance was both pointed and important. This time, let's not just listen, let's learn so we can actually do. The people who run your governments in the local and state level, what do they need to know that they don't for you to do your job better? Um, well, I think in California, we're kind of lucky our governor actually um, has passed some bills that are very supportive of firefighters. I think um, at the more local level, 
um, we've built some good relationships with, um, you know, the local elected officials, but, you know, we're public servants and, and, you know, we're willing to do just about anything. Um, but we need the, the resources to do that safely. And, um, and like, you know, was just mentioned, um, making decisions about how to staff or what apparatus, you know, need to be at what station that can't come from outside the fire service that needs to come from the people who are doing the job. And so a seat at the table in the decision-making process is key to doing our jobs well and doing it safely. Arthur, I saw your daughter walk into your frame very briefly. How old is she? She's eight years old and, and you might see her again in a different form. She has a twin sister. That's funny. Are they nearby? Uh, uh, they're no, not, they're not within arm's reach. When you, she, you, she says goodnight to you. You know, the responsibilities that you have when you go to work and you leave the house, do you think about them at all? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a story about that as a matter of fact. So, um, I have, I, I spent 20 years on the line and for the last three years I've been in the, the fire marshal's office. Um, and, um, my girls are eight. So about five years old, my girls, one of my girls said to me when I got promoted into the fire marshal's office, she said to me, so mommy, you're going to be here in the beginning, at the end, and in the middle, you go to work. I was doing 24 and 48 and 72 hour shifts. And she knew even at five years old that there's a complete difference. And my brothers and sisters who are on the line right now, who are doing shift work, who are doing um, 24s, who are doing uh, 48s, who are who are crushing it because they have to, because they're, you know, they're forced for overtime. God bless you. Um, one of the reasons it's because of those, my, my twin girls that um, I wanted to stay in my union, <laughs> but, um, but I go into the fire marshal's office twofold. And one is so that I can be a better mom and be more, pre more present mom. Um, and um, it, it was, it was really, amazing to know that even at such a young and tender age that they even saw the difference in my work schedule um and that mean a world that i mean that means a world to eat what do the politicians on the state and local level not understand about your job not understand about your responsibilities how can they help you do your job better they Sam. they they just don't understand the amount and type of calls we go to they just don't I still have people here that think we only run fire calls and we run a first response system with a private ambulance service for a class one department, but they don't understand that we run those types of calls, the hot water calls, the, the dogs, the cats, the, um, people get stuck in tricycles. They just don't know what it takes. So our funding's affected. So we're getting funded as a fire department and you're not getting the extra resource you need for the. Uh, sprint vehicles that we're starting to run to keep up with the EMS. You're not getting extra resources to cover because we're constantly having to put people in paramedic class and EMT class to keep up because we're losing those people to 
paramedical services or, or hospitals. The hospitals are draining our paramedics right now to the point to where it's almost unsustainable. We're, we're putting people in paramedic class. Uh, we're putting 10 in a semester and we're retaining, we're retaining two or three. So what the politicians on my level don't understand is the amount of things we're doing. There's, there's a disconnect there between uh, getting the funding and, and having an applied to the department. Uh, you know, when we ask for trucks and when we ask for things, we tend to get them. But I just don't think we're asking enough. And I don't think that the leadership here has enough guidance from, like, let's just say the union guidance to try to help with the funding and what we can get, what we can't. Because we do everything. We're a catch-all. We come in and we solve problems. I mean, it's just like he said a while ago, you know, was, with the Swiss Army knife, that is the that is probably the best analogy of what we're doing. And we need help getting that funding to be able to, to, to do the work we need to do to pay the people that we need to pay because we're not just giving fire and emergency service. We're giving everything. We're helping people in and out of the bed. We're helping people change air filters. We're helping old people get their garbage up and down the street sometimes. Everything. Kevin and then Mike. Yeah, so one thing I'd like to add uh, about is about staffing. For us, it's staffing. <clears throat> Staffing, I know this is across the uh, across the country, but um, for you know, a line I've heard before, well, we give you guys good trucks, we give you guys good equipment, we give you guys all this stuff that I, you know, I've never seen a fire truck that can put out a fire alone. So, you know, a mil even a million dollar truck won't do it. So, I th I think for for us, it's a more focus on the staffing, um, really across across the country. Okay, Orion, you're up. Yeah, I think um, uh, what what they don't understand is that we're 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 gonna we're gonna do the job. Um, you know, whether that's here in Arizona fighting a, a brush fire that lasts you know eighteen hours when it's one hundred and twenty degrees outside, or 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 stepping into a pandemic where you're running 10, 15, 20 COVID calls a day and you have no idea really what even. You know, there, you, you know, there's someone on your crew that probably doesn't know what COVID stands for. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to do that job and, and the, the toll that it takes on us. I'm, uh, in, in addition to being a, a local officer with my, in my local, I'm also the, uh, the state cancer coordinator for the professional firefighters of Arizona. And I get a, about three or four new cancer cases a week of just of people in, in the state that, that reach out to me. Um, you know, and I know there are people out there suffering also. And, and, and these members are out there, um, you know, getting their claims denied and, and fighting and, 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 you know, the, the laws and the resources that are available to, um, to us are, are, are just different. We're playing by a different set of rules. Um, and they move the goalposts on us. You know, we, we got one of the most ironclad presumptive legislations here in the state of Arizona, and we still, two cases last week, I had two qualifying members, one of which is, he's not going to, to make it, you know, get their claim denied. So these um, these stressors that, that happen to us from these long campaign fires and, and COVID and all the other stuff, they manifest into stress, sleep deprivation, and other things. We're, we're, we're not doing the, uh, it, it just translates into other diseases, uh, divorce, everything like that. So, you know, the, the money that they could spend now can prevent some of that stuff. 
uh, by supporting us through legislation and, and financially, they can they can help prevent that stuff. You know, we help prevent. You know, I, I think everybody on this call has probably, you know, not to sound like a braggart, but we've probably all saved dozens of lives in, in some way or another, whether medically or, or in a fire. And and they can do that to us by by supporting us with with these measures. So that's that's my piece. Uh, this is perfect. Mike, how many hours a week do you typically work? Uh, we're scheduled to work 72, 72 a week, 144 a pay period, but typically those guys are working 96, 96 a week. By a show of hands, who typically works 50 hours a week or more? Raise your hands if you do. That's almost all of you. Who works 60 hours a week or more? I don't think people know this. No. Already. No, pe people are idiots. No <laughs> offense to people. No, I'm, no I'm exactly day right. four or five. I'm work I'm yeah. here for five. So I'm here for 120 hours right now. Bless your heart. How much of that is overtime? It's mandatory. It's all mandatory overtime. Wow. Live data straight enough mandatory. That's what I don't think people understand is it's not it's not it's not overtime. It's that you show up to work and your employer tells you that you cannot leave. You know, it's great if you know in advance, you know, that, hey, I'm going to have to suck it up again and work, you know, four out of five days. But there's days where I will go into work. I will plan to leave at 730 in the morning. And at 715, I'm told that I cannot leave. What's happening? What man demanding to staff the trucks. And, and, and so I'm now there for another 24. And that can happen again. And that can happen again. And that can happen again in perpetuity because that's the job. And that's who we are. And I think that's very difficult to explain to anybody. Mike, what do the political people not get about what you do and what do you need? Beautiful thing for me is I'm a Fed fire guy. So they really, the Capitol Hill really doesn't get it. I don't believe they give a about any, any of us. Um, why do you, totally, why do you feel that way? Well, you know, I work on the world's largest naval base. We have about 65,000 people a day on base. You know, aircraft carrier holds about 5,000, three of those important, there's 15K people right there and countless other buildings and ships. I got inside my district, there's, what is it, 13, 15 trucks or so, and I have four that are operational. We have mechanics that say, drive a truck. It's, you know, it's blowing cooling out of a, out of a radiator line. Just shut it off when you get to a call. I said, how do you put a fire out with no pump? I'll just figure it out. We have guys riding around, and we're a career professional department. We have guys riding around in pickup trucks, and no no knocks on any volunteers, but it's very volunteer esque, you know. And we're we're the federal government. We're we're the supposed to be the the tip of the spear, right? We're the bottom of the spear. Um, we all struggle struggle with staffing. We've struggled prior to COVID. So, in 2017, 18, we've been struggling staffing. Guys are working two to three extra months a year. Some of the three-month guys are by choice. They like money. I don't. I like my family. I'm actually December 3rd resigning from this position and going to another agency to get away from the staffing crisis. Um, it's miserable. Miserable if I would say that my mental health. So I told you earlier, I started becoming a fireman during the military post 9-11. I've been doing it since I'm 19 years old. I'm 37. 
And uh, my mental health has been the worst this year. The worst. Absolute horrible. Uh, brink of divorce, brink of losing my children. Life's wild, you know. And uh, all the while, your fire chief goes home every night, eats his his steak tartare and drinks his wine and rubs shoulders with whoever he rubs shoulders with. And uh, it's pretty much just big use. And that's that's how I feel. That's how most of my members feel. You know, I'm not so politically correct with my my verbiage, but it's usually to the point. Um, so they need they need to understand that we're people doing extraordinary things with very little to to nothing. Most of our own money. I use my own money to come to work. I buy my own, my own paper towels, my own cleaning supplies, because budget crisis. We're in crisis mode all the time. And uh, that is my soapbox. Every year around holiday time, I try to thank my local firefighters personally for all that they do for us every day of the year. I hope you'll do the same. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Dr. Frank Luntz, and from all of us at Trade Arrow News, we thank you for listening and watching. Goodbye for now.